Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast on the churches of the New Testament in which we explore what we can know about the various churches described in the New Testament and see how they can help encourage us in how we should glorify God in Christ today. I am Ethan, very glad that you've joined us and thank you for the gift of spending time as we now consider the church in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 9, Paul received a vision the night that there was a man of Macedonia standing, beseeching him, saying, come over to Macedonia and to help us. And Paul had been trying to go in various parts of modern-day Turkey, but the Spirit had forbidden him to uh, because the Spirit's goal was for him to cross over into Europe. And the first place that Paul begins to preach in European soil is a town we call Philippi. Philippi is in northeastern Greece. We talk about it as Greece today, but it is part of the Roman province and the historic part of Macedonia. When we think of Greece, uh, we think of Athens or Corinth or Sparta, stuff like that. That's much further south. Uh, In classical times, uh, the area of Philippi, Philippi wasn't even a city yet, but that area is part of Macedonia. It was, in fact, part of the Persian Empire at that time. It was considered a backwater. It's not part of uh, Greece per se. Um, It was a town that was founded and, and named for Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. Uh, who himself had uh, conquered most of uh, what we consider Greece today. And it was originally a mining town that was there to exploit the gold fields nearby, Uh, but it also was on a road called the Ignatian Way. And especially by the Roman times, that was a major artery because it crossed the uh, area uh, from the Aegean Sea over to the Adriatic Sea. And so you could cross over Greece on it and, of course, go on your way to Rome. And so it became part of the Roman Empire in 168 BC uh, when Macedonia was made part of it. And Philippi becomes very important after the civil wars uh, that took place because of the death of Julius Caesar. So in uh, northern Greece, this area, uh, Octavian, who we would know as Augustus, defeated uh, the armies of Cassius and Brutus. Uh, to be able to secure his place uh, in what would become the Roman Empire. And the area near Philippi was given to these soldiers who had fought for Augustus as kind of their uh, pension, as kind of their, their pay for what they had done. And the city itself was made a Roman colony. As a Roman colony, its citizens had a Roman citizenship, and it was renamed Colonia Julia Augusta Philippensis. And at this point, it is populated mostly by families of Roman soldiers and their descendants. Although there would have probably also been an underclass that was much more Greek and of local origin. There's not a very large Jewish population, as we will see in the fact that Paul will be visiting a, a riverbank where he expects there to be a prayer service. That means there's no synagogue in town. And if there's no synagogue in town, it's because there's not enough Jewish people for the synagogue to be sustained. Uh, so the city is very much mostly Gentile and very specifically Roman. A lot of wealthy Romans uh, in the city as well. Very pagan, but not known for any kind of excessive immorality. And so, as we saw, in, from around 49-51, Paul and Silas had visited the churches that Paul had helped establish in Galatia. They were trying to go to Turkey, the Spirit forbade them, and they went over to Macedonia, as had been uh, expected through the Spirit of God. 
We can also see at this time in the book of Acts, by the way, that uh, Paul and Silas has now been joined by Luke. Luke has started using the first person plural, that Luke himself is a witness and participant in the events taking place. So they sailed to Neapolis, they went to Philippi, he starts preaching there on the riverbank, and one of the people who were converted was a woman named Lydia, who is from Thyatira in Asia Minor, uh, who is a seller of purple. Uh, she is called a God-fear, so she is a Gentile who is interested in the Jewish religion, but for some reason is not becoming a full proselyte. Uh, the gospel found very fertile fields in many such God-fearers, and it did with Lydia. Uh, and as a seller of purple, purple was a very uh, luxurious dye at that time. And while just because you're working with that dye doesn't necessarily mean you are wealthy, the fact that she is able to welcome into her house at least these five guys, if not a larger retinue, shows that she has some kind of wealth, some kind of space to be able to do that. And uh, so that's where Paul and his associates are staying. We don't know how long he's in Philippi. Uh, some days, it says in Acts 16 and verse 12. Uh, and we, we know why he leaves quickly because of the story in Acts 16, 16 through 40. Because there's a slave girl in town that has a spirit of divination. And her owners make a lot of money because she tells fortunes and she's able to make them money that way. But he's, she's constantly harassing Paul, standing behind her, screaming out behind him that these are the prophets and servants of the Most High God. And uh, because of that, Paul just gets annoyed one day and just says, I, I command you to come out of her. And of course, the spirit leaves the girl. The girl's in better health this way. But of course, her owners now have lost their source of income. And because of that, they drag Paul and Silas before the authorities and say, these are Jewish people advocating practices that we as Romans should not practice. And again, in Philippi, that's a big concern. And they were beaten and thrown into a prison. Uh, now, in the middle of the night, there's the earthquake, and there's the great story there in Acts 16 about the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his household based on what he had seen, and, and there's a lot to bear witness to there, and certainly we have every reason to believe that that jailer and his family would become part of the church in Philippi, but for the point of our narrative and looking at the history of the church here, it's important for us to see what happens the next day, when the magistrates say, hey, let him out of prison, and Paul makes this big fuss all of a sudden, wait a second, they've, uh, they're just pri you know, telling us to leave when we are Romans who were beaten uncondemned, and all of a sudden the magistrates are freaked out because in, a, in their heat and passion, they beat up Paul and Silas. But Paul, we know for certain, and clearly from this passage, it may seem that Silas as well, have Roman citizenship. And one of the things about Roman citizenship is that you need to have some kind of charge against you before you get beaten. And so the magistrates could get in a lot of trouble for this. And so the magistrates come themselves, publicly apologize, uh, but still ask Paul to leave. And Paul will spend a couple moments there with Lydia and the brethren, and then will leave and will go out and uh, go down to Thessalonica. Uh, Luke may seem to be uh, left behind there because his uh, first-person plural narrative will end at the end of verse 19, uh, and it will pick up again later in the book of Acts. And so we think that Paul did that because he's trying to create some space for the church to, to be uh, given some distance from the magistrates. After all, if they've just been beaten because they're advocating for practices that uh, are not lawful for the Romans to do, the fact that he's leaving, there are still these people there who are now doing those things that the, uh, the magistrates have been told that are things Romans shouldn't do. And so uh, the magistrates are going to think twice, at least in the short term, about doing anything to those people because uh, their own fault and own transgression may come up and cause them difficulty. But nevertheless, we can see that the church here is started in a time of persecution. Uh, and yet, uh, when we look at what we can see about the church in Philippi uh, in the record, 
And Paul will continue to return to Philippi at various times. Uh, at some point during his time in Ephesus, he went to Macedonia to find Titus. Uh, we can see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, he probably spent some time in Philippi when he did that. Uh, he wanted to travel to Macedonia uh, after he spent his time in Ephesus, sometime after 57, and he was able to do that, according to Acts 19.21 and chapter 20 and verse, 20, verse 1. And that when he went back again, after spending some time in Corinth, he went through Macedonia again. And in verses 3 through 6 of Acts 20, Philippi is mentioned again specifically. Uh, we'll talk about the letter he wrote to the Philippians. It's believed he's written writing that during his first Roman imprisonment, sometime between 60 and 62. Um, he traveled again among churches. Um, in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3, Paul departed from Ephesus to Macedonia, so therefore we have reason to believe that he visited Macedon Philippi again in 63 or 64. Um, and we don't have any other recorded visits of Paul to Philippi or to Macedonia. So we at least visit them again at least four times between 52 and 64. Um, there is some early Christian literature about the church in Philippi in the early 2nd century. Um, there is a letter of Ignatius of Antioch to the church in the Philippians, but some believe it to be spurious that actually was written at the end of that century, not from Ignatius. But Polycarp of Smyrna did write a letter to the church in Philippi sometime between 115 and 155. Uh, he said that the Christians there were continuing in their love for one another and the teachings Paul had given them and encouraged them to remain faithful. Unfortunately, there was uh, an elder there named Valens who had fallen into covetousness and should repent. Uh, and this time it seems that they had followed the lead of Ignatius of Antioch and had a bishop over the elders, which is one of those challenges that we've mentioned in many places. But we see here that there is still a church here in the second century that is present, is strong and mature. And Philippi would continue as a city until the Ottoman era. Uh, and has since become a very small uh, little town, village, basically uninhabited uh, uh, to this, at this particular time. We learn a lot about the church in Philippi in part of the correspondence that Paul has with the, with the Corinthians, especially 2 Corinthians, and also in the letter to the Philippians itself. Now, when he's writing to the Philippians uh, in Philippians, we need to be careful about just assuming that everything that we see written there is showing that these are a lot of problems. Uh, it's, he's not writing the, to the Philippians the way he wrote to the Galatians. I mean, the reason there is a letter to the Galatians is because there's this issue that's come up, and he had to, you know, fire this letter off very quickly uh, to try to deal with the situation. He's writing to the Philippians between 60 and 62, and we can see the reason why he's writing when we look at chapter 2. That the Philippians had sent him uh, money through the hands of Epaphroditus, uh, we get the from Philippians 4 that he was received money, and then in Philippians 2 that we read about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus uh, was ministering there with Paul, or for Paul, while he was in his uh, imprisonment there in Rome. We know that that one is definitely in Rome, since he sends at the end of the letter, greetings from Caesar's household. Uh, so there's clearly a connection there with Rome. He's under house arrest there, and Epaphroditus is, is serving with him, encouraging, working with him, but got very sick. And fact, sick even to death. And Paul was very grieved by that and uh, prayed and prayed, and God did heal him. Uh, and so Paul felt that it was right to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians to uh, provide that encouragement to see him again, since that he is one of them. And 
the letter of the Philippians would have been sent with Epaphroditus, and this is an opportunity for Paul to provide some exhortations and to encourage the Christians based upon their relationship and the stuff going on. In fact, when you read through the letter of the Philippians, of all the letters that Paul writes to all the churches, the church in Philippi has the fewest difficulties and has the fewest challenges. Um, it's should be noted that in the very first verse that he's writing to the church there, to Christians there, and to uh, the elders and deacons, that they have set up uh, proper, mature spiritual leadership the way that God intended. And uh, yes, there is the matter of Yodia and Syntyche that we'll talk about, but we also shouldn't blow that up and make that more than we ought to. Uh, it should be noted that in that very same verse that all of them, Aeodius, Syntyche, and Syzygus, or a true yoke fellow, they are all written in the name of, the, their names are in the book of life. And for that to be the case, it means that they, they can't be, be in some serious uh, beef or anything with each other. Uh, Paul just wants them to work better together, uh, which is something that could be said for, for many. Um, if, if Paul were going to write to any one of our churches today and we got off as easily as the Philippians did, we should be uh, very thankful. Uh, but there's some things that we can see in the letters and in also in 2 Corinthians as well as in Philippians that tell us something about the church in Philippi. Uh, one of the things that Paul prayed about was uh, the fact that he prayed for them and thanked God for them because of the uh, fellowship and the furtherance of the gospel from the first day until now. That the church in Philippi, we are told here, has given t many times to Paul so that he can continue his ministry. He says in the letter that even while he was in uh, Thessalonica, so very soon after, like within, you know, a very short time after the church had been started, they were already starting to send him money as they had opportunity to. And also... Uh, that they had that Epaphroditus had brought the money, and that there are other times that the Philippians really wanted to give but weren't able to. And, and Paul makes it clear that when they do that, they are jointly participating in his work. Uh, they are supporting him financially, and because of that, they are sharing in the glory that comes from the work that he is doing. Uh, the glory, of course, all is God, but you know it is not just credited to Paul; it is also credited to them because they are helping to support Paul in that work. Uh, likewise, in Second Corinthians chapter eight. We're told that he, he's there trying to cajole the Christians in Corinth and other places. Like, hey, they're ready to uh, uh, give a great donation. He's been boasting that among other people. So he's not saying, now that I've said that about you, y'all going to give something, right? <laughs> uh, but he points out that the church, the Christians of Macedonia, the churches of Macedonia had given beyond their means to provide for these Christians in Judea who needed assistance. And so the fact that they say that it is beyond their means, that they show the very benevolent heart, that they, they're very giving people, and they want to give to glorify God, to accomplish God's purposes, um, and that many times the Philippians themselves were the only ones doing this, especially when it comes to Paul. Now, it's granted that when he talks about Macedonia, it's not just Philippi, it would include Thessalonica, Berea, maybe other churches, but it's certainly not less than the Philippians. The Philippians would be considered part of that. And so we can see that the Christians in Philippi have this heart. Uh, and you think about how extraordinary that is, especially that uh, here you've got people who now have a heart to give to people across the Aegean Sea and down uh, who are Jewish, who are very different in background and ethnicity. And otherwise you would not expect to want to be so earnestly desiring to give, but because of what they share in Christ, because of the desire to further the gospel, because of their now joint participation in Christ, they uh, will give and give generously to these people. And so they're very giving people, and they are a very loving people. In Philippians 1 and verse 9, Paul prayed that their love would abound yet more and more in knowledge and discernment. And that, of course, is why do they give, right? Why are the Philippians giving? Well, they loved the brethren. They loved Paul. 
They loved uh, Christians uh, in Judea and other places, and they loved Epaphroditus. And you think about how they were willing to send Epaphroditus, uh, that they were willing to, to suffer the loss of that wor- worker among themselves to help with Paul, really also shows you their dedication to Paul and, and everything going on there, and their great love for Epaphroditus as well. And the fact that they supported Paul shows their love for Paul. And you think about the fact that Paul is in prison. Paul is being humiliated in a very real way through all that he's going through, and yet they are committed to him. They're jointly participating with him, even in the midst of that time of humiliation, that they truly indeed upheld the gospel the way that it was, it was sent to them uh, and gave him great encouragement. Uh, we can see throughout the letter that the church in Philippi provides a lot of encouragement to Paul. And Philippians 2 and verse 12, that they have obeyed, not just in Paul's presence, but now in his absence, and he wants them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And again, it's one of those things where the Christians, they're a very firm congregation. Yes, uh, Yodic and Syneche need to be of the same mind, and Syzygis, or true yoke fellow, needs to help them work together. Uh, we don't know why that's going on, but this is the only real crit- difficulty or criticism of the church there. Um, Otherwise, it's just warnings and exhortation. Again, their names are written in the Book of Life, so it's clearly not that big of a deal. He does tell them, you know, watch out for the the circumcision, the dogs, he calls them, Philippians 3, 1 and 2, uh, because of the the difficulties and the fact that they may try to cause difficulties there like they did in Galatia and other places, and also to be on the look out for the false teachers whose God is their belly and who, you know, work to their shame in Philippians 3, 18 through 19. Uh, It talks about striving, you know, considering everything that he had as trash in order to obtain the resurrection. But in all these things, these are exhortations, in general, he's quote-unquote spraying for it. He's trying to make sure that these are just general expectations. There's no reason to think that this is something going on presently in the church in Philippi. He's just, again, warning about dangers as a good preacher and a good friend would do. Uh, this is a re- letter of reminder and encouragement uh, that is there, very important. Um, and it's interesting the way that he even puts it shows how contextual it is. He says in verse 27 that they are to, uh, says, walk worthily. But what that really means is to be a citizen, to be a good citizen of God's kingdom and to act worthily as a citizen of God's kingdom. Then, of course, in Philippians 3 and verse 20, that our citizenship is from heaven, uh, from which we await the Savior Jesus, who will uh, transform our bodies of humiliation to be like his glorious body. So not just talking about what our hope is in the resurrection, but also there that idea of citizenship. And as the Philippians, being Roman citizens primarily in the city of Philippi, that idea of being a good citizen is something that they would understand. And so Paul is exhorting them, be good citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That might mean that you're not the greatest Roman citizen uh, in the eyes of others, uh, even though you are being as obedient as you possibly can. Uh, So this is the exhortation that he has for these Philippian Christians, and uh, very powerful and important. So, what do we say about the church in Philippi? Well, we can ask a good question. Where do encouragers get their encouragement? And this is a challenge that many have had for you, especially those who are evangelists, those who pour themselves out. We can see throughout the the scriptures how Paul, of all people, is pouring himself out uh, for others. Who's pouring into Paul? Well, we can see that he gained a lot of strength and encouragement from his quote-unquote home base in Antioch. But we also see he's, he, that the Philippians are that too. Philippians are uh, pouring into Paul. They provide him support, even when nobody else will, uh, in terms of finances. Uh, they, 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 he knows that he's, they're praying for him, that they are a mature church, that, that he can rely on them and depend on them to that end. Um, they have the first examples of elders and deacons in, in Europe, uh, for, for what we can tell there. And... 
so there's a lot of encouragement there. And it's so powerful when you can find a group of Christians who are that encouragers of the encouragers. Uh, and churches that are mature and like that. And so in many ways in which we should aspire to be very much like Philippi uh, in these ways and find ways to be those kind of Christians and to work together well and to endure even in the face of hostility and persecution, perhaps even thrive because we are uh, enduring in the face of such hostility and persecution. So that's our exploration there at the church in Philippi. We look forward to our next opportunity where, Lord willing, we will look into the church in Thessalonica. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again. Amen.